Will you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3? James chapter 3. And the fellows have Bibles for anybody who needs one as they make their way down the aisle. Just get their attention and they'll get a copy of the scriptures to you. And we want you to have a Bible. That is yours to keep. It's our gift to you. We want to get the scriptures into the hands of as many people as is possible. And so please keep that as our gift. We sing a song before the message every week, like, Speak, O Lord, sometimes ancient words. We do that because we want to remind ourselves what it is that we do during this time every week on the Lord's Day as we open God's Word together. We do that because it is something that can become very routine for us. Every week at this time, long about 10 o'clock, I stand up, I say, turn to a passage, and then we just can go through the routine. So we want to be reminded by singing a verse of song like that of what it is we're doing and how important it is. But even the singing of the song can become routine as well. And so I want us to just take a few moments to remind ourselves what it is we're doing and why we do it. What we hold in our hands right now is none other than God's Word. It's His communication to us. It was penned by men, but it came from God. And because it is God's word, it has no error, and it has full authority from the sovereign God of the universe. Now let's be honest, we don't often think about that consciously, do we? We open it because we always do. This is just what we do. But we're opening God's communication to us from Him, No error, His full authority. And because that's true, when it makes a demand upon me or upon you, I, we are obligated to obey. When it makes a promise to me, I can count on it as being done already because God cannot lie. When it tells me, when the Word of God tells me what I am like, what my problems and my sins are, I have no higher court to which I can appeal. All I can do, all I should do is humbly receive what it says about me. Accept it as true. And thank God, hear this, thank God for caring enough for me to tell me the truth about myself. Now that truth about ourselves is sometimes not a very pretty picture. Brother Zach preached a couple of weeks ago for us. And he talked about how we tend to give more attention to our physical well-being than our spiritual well-being. And we're tempted to appreciate those who help us physically, even when it's bad news, but we don't view a spiritual checkup really the same way. We're grateful if a medical doctor runs tests to reveal problems with our bodies. And one of the reasons that we're grateful for that, or some of the reasons we're grateful, is one, those tests tell us stuff about us that we can't see. Secondly, the doctor presumably has expertise to tell us what to do about it. And then thirdly, presumably we care about our physical health. But we're sometimes offended when God's x-ray or MRI reveals spiritual issues. And you know the Bible does do the first two of the three things that I just listed that a doctor can do. 
The Bible says about itself in Hebrews 4.12, it, the Bible, the Word of God, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And because that's true of God's Word, it can search me as nothing else can do. And it tells me stuff, tells us stuff that we can't see. Just like the x-ray can. And of course, God has expertise to tell us what to do about it. And so the only issue really is the third one. Do I care as much about being spiritually healthy as I do about being physically healthy? If we do, then God's Word is here to help us. And it contains several profiles. It contains many portraits. It contains a a number of vignettes of what we're like and what we're supposed to be like. Let me give you three metaphors that are helpful to me with regard to how the Word of God functions for us in that way. The Word of God is, first, it's, it's like a window through which I am to see His world. It gives me the filter through which I see His world. It's a tinted window, to be sure. So that it puts things in proper perspective. I am to look at the world through the window of God's, of God's Word. But it's also a mirror in which I see myself. I see what I'm like. I see where I am right now. And that, as I mentioned earlier, is an ugly picture very often of where I am spiritually. But thanks be to God, He doesn't leave us there. The Word of God is like a window. It is like a mirror, but it is also like a portrait, a picture of what I should be like. There's not just a mirror telling me what I'm like, but it's a picture of what I should be like. And the Word of God, of course, gives me the instructions, the things that I need in order for the mirror to become like the portrait. In order for what I see reflected back to me in God's Word to become more like the picture that He tells me ought to be true of me, of you. And today we have one of those profiles. And it's one of those profiles that you could, if you don't get in the right frame of mind, you could come away and say, you know, I hate being beat up. I really hate looking in that mirror because it's tough. I've already had to study it. It's already been tough for me. But it's an accurate picture from Almighty God of what each of us should be like. And it's also a mirror for many of us regarding what we are like. James chapter 3 and verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's ask God to help us as we look into the mirror and see the portrait that he's provided for us.
Father, we come before your word, humbled by the reminder that it is your word. That it is your endeavor to communicate to us, and you've done so perfectly. You've done so without error, and because it's your word, I can't quibble with it, we cannot quibble with it, we must take it as it is, the word of Almighty God. It has your full authority behind it. It has your blessings attending it, if we will follow. But it has all the difficulties, all the disorder, all of the confusion that go on in our relationships, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, if we fail to obey. And so, Lord, thank you for the reminder of the gravity of that which we hold in our hands and the issues that we confront today in the mirror of your word. Help us, Lord God, by your grace to become the portrait that you present. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, last week in our series, Living Wisely in a Foolish World, which is going to be primarily, in fact, from this point on, probably exclusively from the book of Proverbs, we saw that wisdom, which is just skillful living, you've learned if you've been with us these last couple of weeks, but this wisdom, this skillful living, will produce benefits for the one who possesses that wisdom. But we saw last week as well that, perversely, we can foolishly misuse the benefits that wisdom affords us. And it's just a, it's just a teaser. You have to think about it. That you have to be wise to get these benefits. Then getting the benefits, we're all a combination of wisdom and foolishness such that I get these benefits by virtue of wisdom, and then I can use them foolishly. And we saw that in the life of Solomon, who we saw was characterized by misdirected wisdom and misused wealth, multiplied women that ultimately led him to, to mixed worship. It's a cautionary tale for all of us because if this befell Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the Bible tells us, if even Solomon could use his wisdom foolishly, then it has to serve as a warning to you and to me who are, all of us, a mixture of wisdom and of foolishness. Now remember this. Wisdom and foolishness in Scripture are not primarily matters of intellect, how much you know, how smart you are. They're primarily matters of character. And so we saw last week, for instance, that one can be a wise manager of his money, but he can still be a fool, depending on what he does with that money. Depending on what kind of moral character he has. He can be rich toward this world, but not be rich toward God. And to the extent that I or you exhibit foolishness in our lives, we're really displaying character flaws. We're really displaying moral defects in our lives. We're not just displaying stuff we don't know. It's not primarily a matter of knowledge or of intellect, but rather of moral character. Now, have you ever snidely said of someone, he or she is a legend in their own mind? Or, he knows everything, just ask him. Now these are derogatory ways of describing somebody who's pretty high on himself, pretty full of himself. And he thinks it's for good reason that he's high on himself. His motto is, everyone is entitled to my opinion. Now we don't care for people like that, because we know that wisdom is not simply something that's to be asserted. But wisdom is something that's to be demonstrated. It's to be displayed. It's to be shown. 
And that's precisely what we're told in James chapter 3. Notice again verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. Now why is James addressing this issue of, of wisdom, true wisdom versus false wisdom, as we will see? Well, if you were to read at the beginning of chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 12, you would find that all 12 of those verses are devoted to the use of one's tongue, how one communicates, what one says. All 12 verses are about that. They're about the danger, the potential danger that the tongue can represent, depending on how it's used. And so verse 1 talks about those who would be teachers, those who would tell you how the world works. And verse 1 warns that those who are teachers will be judged with a stricter judgment. And goes on to talk about them not being so quick to talk, but going back to chapter 1 and verse 19 of James. All of us should be quick to listen and slow to speak, says James. So he gives this warning to all of those who would say, I'm a legend in my own mind, or think that. And everyone's entitled to my opinion. Not so fast. Be careful. Be careful that what you say and how you use your tongue is a proper representation of truth and of God and of His purposes. And so the reason James is asking the question now in verse 13, who is it that is wise and understanding among you, is because apparently, verses 1 through 12, there were those who were trumpeting their wisdom and their understanding, their knowledge. And they were very quick to let everybody know how much they knew and how wise they were. James warns about that and then asks the probing question, who is it really that is wise and understanding? And notice, among you. This is not a passage written for just those out there. It is not written to non-Christians. It is written to Christian people. It is at least professing Christian people who want the spotlight, who want their opinion to be heard, understood, and followed. And so they're using their tongue accordingly. And James is now warning, even among you now, in your midst, among the assembly of God's people in His church, who is wise and understanding among you? The word that's translated wise, the Greek word, sophos. We get sophistry from it. We get philosophy. You know what philosophy means? Philosophy is a Greek word for love. Sophos means, means wisdom. And philosophy is love of wisdom. And so who is the one who, who is wise? By the way, did you all know, I said we're all a combination of wisdom and foolishness. You know what sophomore means? Well, sophos means, you just learned that part, right? You know the first part, it's wise. But the more part, we get our word moron from it. So a sophomore is literally a wise fool. And from the Bible's perspective, we're all sophomores. We're all, in a sense, wise fools. We all have this wisdom available to us. Most, many of us practice it in some areas, but we also have the tendency toward foolishness as well. Now, I've got to be very careful about this sophomore thing. My daughter's in 10th grade. Is she in here? Good. She's serving outside. We will edit that portion from the, uh, from the recording. 
Who is, who is wise among you? And then the next one is, who is understanding among you? We get our word for understanding uh, epistemology from that. It means, it means to know. And the two words are virtually synonymous, but the idea of wisdom has a, a moral emphasis to it, understanding a more intellectual emphasis to it. And James is saying this, I've heard of all the talk. I've heard you wagging your tongue about how superior you are, you are in terms of your wisdom and in your intellect. But who is really wise, has moral character? Who is really understanding, has proper intellect? And you can't have the one without the other. Who among you really has that? Now we're going to present a profile, a portrait of what that is like and what it's not like. And James says it's demonstrated by, and I have this for you in the outline, that's inserted in your program, it's demonstrated by its actions. So verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. It's demonstrated by actions in what James calls a good life. James is sure that when you have things that he's going to talk about in verse 14, envy and selfish ambition, when you have that kind of thing going on, when you have people who apparently are ambitious for position, for prominence, who want to be heard and want their opinion to be implemented at whatever cost, James is sure that when someone is using their tongue that way, that there are aspects of this person's life that are not good. True wisdom and true understanding are demonstrated by what he calls a good life. Demonstrated by fruit that will be seen in other areas. And so the person who will quickly tell you, is always happy to tell you the way the world works, the way any particular thing ought to work, the way a family ought to work, the way it ought to happen on the job, the way it ought to work in the church, the person who is always ready to tell you that and insistent that you follow James is saying there will be flaws in that person's life in other areas because of the selfish ambition that motivates it. Prove it by your good life. And the good life means good life, circumspect. It's the idea, a life that has, is encircled around with good traits. And so you don't just look the part, you are the part in every aspect of your life if you're truly wise and understanding. James is implying that if you look further at these loudmouths in verses 1 through 12, you'll find they don't have a good life in all aspects. Talk to their co-workers, James would say. What are they like there? Talk to their family. Talk to their extended family. How does their family feel about them? What kind of relationships do they have with their spouse and with their children? True wisdom and true understanding is demonstrated by a good life, by actions. But further, James says, it's demonstrated by its attitude. Verse 13 says, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. This word that's translated humility is the word that's sometimes translated gentleness, sometimes translated meekness. And for the person who wants position, who is driven by selfish ambition, who wants everyone to hear him or her and follow what they have to say, because they 
have this superior wisdom and understanding. For that person, the worst trait you could possibly have is humility. And, and if you have to use the word, use that. Don't call it meekness, for heaven's sake. I'd rather be anything, says this person, than thought of as meek. Real men are not meek, says he. Real men stand up for their rights. Real men let everybody know what they think and why they're wrong. Humble? Gentle? Meek? We forget who was called humble and gentle and meek in Scripture. Here's what the Bible says. I think. Guys like Moses? The Bible says Moses was a very humble man. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. None other than the Lord Jesus himself said, I am gentle and humble in heart. The person who must be heard trumpets their own wisdom and understanding with their tongue. That person cannot abide this notion of humility, gentleness, and meekness. And they mistake the person who is meek as weak. Weakness and meekness are the same thing in that person's mind. And the reason you don't stand up is because you don't have the guts. When in fact, the person who is meek and is humble and is gentle is a person who has the character to pursue unity. This person described in chapter 3 doesn't care about unity. We care about me being heard. People have to know that I was right. Or people at least have to know that I was not wrong. And so I make sure that everybody knows it wasn't my decision. And just so you guys know, I don't just make this up. Because I know sometimes you think, man, Brown, he is pretty hard. I'm not making any of this up, okay? This is what God is saying. New Testament scholar D. Edmund Hebert says this. The meek man does not feel a need to contend for recognition of his rights or acceptance of his personal views. The person who's truly wise and truly understand is the person who demonstrates that they are motivated by humility, gentleness, and meekness. Now, what is a failure to do that born of? What's at, what's at root for the person who is making this boisterous, my opinion, listen to me approach? Well, look at Roman numeral 2 in your outline. And you see the portrait of worldly, and then in quotes, wisdom, so-called wisdom. And it has this kind of wisdom, parading itself as wisdom, has an ungodly motivation. Notice verse 14. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So the person has been boasting in verses 1 through 12 about how superior they are in their wisdom and in their understanding. And now James is saying, let's see who's really wise and who's really understanding. And it's the person who demonstrates it by their life that is motivated by humility, not by pride. 
that has as its root motivation this envy and selfish ambition in verse 14. Worldly wisdom, hear this friends, has an ungodly motivation. And we make the mistake of not seeing that for what it is in our own lives when we look into the mirror in the lives of others when we see it in them. We say things like, well, you know, he means well. You know, James doesn't seem to be saying that folks mean well. They mean to promote themselves. They mean to promote their ideas. They mean to promote their opinion. They do not have the requisite character of humility and gentleness, meekness. I have a book on my shelf. Here's the title of the book. It's about relationships in, in churches. The title of the book is Well-Intentioned Dragons. People who cause trouble in churches. By the way, if you, if you think we've got troubles, we don't have troubles. You've heard me say a thousand times, haven't you? That the best medicine is preventive. We prevent troubles by looking at what God says in His Word. But the fact that there can be troubles, and the fact that there are troubles, is documented in nothing less than the fact that there are books written on the subject. Well-intentioned dragons. Look, I get the dragons part. It's the well-intentioned part I don't get. Because James says it's not so well-intentioned. He or she means well. And it's not, ju it's, not, it's not just those in the pew or in the chair in our case. This is true in all of our hearts, even for preachers and pastors. Paul dealt with it in Philippians chapter 1. He said, some preach Christ out of selfish ambition. And so friends, when I, when I preach this to you, I have first had to look in the mirror myself and see myself there. This is potential, this is reality for any of us. And we can take the most godly activity and we can twist it by our foolishness and the indwelling sin with which we still battle, even in preaching Christ. It has this worldly wisdom and ungodly motivation. It has, as well, James tells us, an ungodly source. Notice verse 15. Such wisdom, and notice he puts it in quotes, it's not true wisdom, but such wisdom, so-called, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. And so, so much for the means well. This has an ungodly source to it. It has a very ungodly pedigree to it that we're going to be reminded of in, in just a moment. This is why the Word of God tells us, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. In order to have true wisdom, which he's going to identify in verses 17 and 18, you're going to have to have the, the Spirit of God motivating you. And as its source. And all of us have to have a supernatural act done upon us in order to have the Spirit motivating us instead of our own selfish ambition. Every last one of us. Now how do I know this? Because selfish ambition goes way back. Isaiah chapter 14. This is Lucifer talking. And it was Lucifer that said, I will ascend to heaven. 
And I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You notice how many times it's I will. It's about me. In verse 15, James says, that kind of wisdom does not come down, it says, from heaven. Literally, it does not come from, some translations say, from above. And that's contrasted with verse 17. Because verse 17 says this, wisdom that comes from above is first of all, and then we're given what true wisdom is. And so this wisdom has an ungodly source. It is earthly. It's unspiritual. It is of the devil. It is not from above. No. Connect this notion of wisdom, true wisdom, coming from above, and false wisdom coming from below, another source, earthly, unspiritual, of the devil, with what Jesus told Nicodemus famously in John chapter 3. You all remember that? John 3? Nicodemus, you must be, you all remember? Born again. And that's what virtually all of our translations say. You must be born again. Here's what's interesting about the word again. It's the same word that's used in verse 15 and in verse 17 of James chapter 3. And is translated from above or from heaven. The Greek word anothen is, means literally from above. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you must be born, yes, a second time. You were born physically the first time. That's why we get the again part. But more important is the source of this second birth. It's a birth from above. It's a birth from heaven. And James is saying in James chapter 3 now, the only person who can demonstrate true wisdom is someone who has experienced this new birth from heaven, from above. Failure to demonstrate in our actions and in our attitudes. Godly wisdom means that we have an ungodly motivation with an ungodly source. And I say in your outline, it has an ungodly result as well. We'll look at the ungodly result here in just a second. But in the words of those great theologians, the Doobie brothers, no wise man has the power to reason away what a fool believes. You see, you have to be born from above to see the wisdom of what God says. I can't make it happen. I can't persuade. But the Spirit of God can on the person who has His Spirit. It has an ungodly motivation, an ungodly source. It has an ungodly result. Notice verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Where you have dissension and confusion and disorder, James is saying it is rooted in this envy and selfish ambition for position by those who do not possess godly wisdom. R. Kent Hughes wrote a commentary on the book of James. And in his commentary, he talks about a word that some of us use but probably don't know its origin. I didn't know its origin. Actually, I'd heard this one time but forgotten it. 
But have you ever used the, the word snafu? Something goes wrong, there was a snafu. We have snafus on Sundays all the time. You have snafus in life. Do you know where that comes from? It actually goes back to World War One, And it's, it's an acronym. And it means this, situation normal, all fouled up. Snafu. And Hughes says in his commentary that the Pentagon has actually updated this because so many things that can go wrong do go wrong in the military as they do in life that it's not just snafu, situation normal, all fouled up. They now have another acronym, FUB, F-U-B-B. Fouled up beyond belief. And what James, what James is saying is this. When you have motivation by envy and selfish ambition, even the best of enterprises will be snafu, will be fub, fouled up beyond belief. He says this. Over the years, in speaking at pastors' conferences, I've repeatedly been told horror stories which would tax the credulity of those who are unfamiliar with the ravages of worldly, quote, wisdom in the church. Situations truly fouled up beyond belief. Now here's the good news. Our good and gracious God gives us a mirror, but He also gives us a picture. We're going to see that picture briefly. And then He tells us how we can attain that picture. Notice what God says. already referred refer to that. But the fruit of the Spirit includes this requisite humility, gentleness, meekness. You all see that? The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. None other than the Lord Jesus Himself said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I referred to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29 where Jesus said, I am gentle, I am meek. But the full context of those verses, Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And they would put often two oxen together to to pull a plow, to pull a cart, they would often put an experienced ox with an inexperienced younger ox. And get the picture here. Jesus is saying, team up to me. And you will learn how to be meek and how to be humble in heart. So what's the portrait of true wisdom? It's in verses 17 and 18. And it has a number of godly characteristics. And I will bounce through these fairly quickly that James lists for us in verse 17. Wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. And he says, first of all, pure, he means this is the priority. The priority in order to have godly wisdom is that you have this purity. Now, in the context, what is the purity? It means not being contaminated by the things mentioned in the prior verses, in verse four, verses 14 and 16, envy and selfish ambition. Wisdom that comes from above is pure in that it is not contaminated by envy and selfish ambition. It does not care who gets the credit. It really doesn't care who gets the blame. Because it's not about me. 
It is free from envy and selfish ambition. This word that's translated pure here is used of the Lord Jesus himself in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. So it's unmixed with envy and selfish ambition. It's pure in that sense, but it's also pure in the sense that it's unmixed devotion to God. It is, first of all, pure. It doesn't have envy, selfish ambition, and it has an unmixed devotion to God and God's reputation. It is not about us. James goes on to say, it's first of all pure, and then flowing from that, and without that, none of these things flow. But flowing from that, then, it is peace-loving. If this person who possesses true wisdom can be a peacemaker because they love peace, and they love peace because they know peace. Why do they know peace? Because they've been born from above. And Jesus has given his spirit, and Jesus says in John 15, My peace I give to you. They have peace with God. They have the peace that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They've grown to love peace, and they want to promote peace. So far from this meekness being weakness, these are people who have the character to pursue unity and peace above all else. And that's why the Bible tells us, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to do what leads to peace. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. James says another characteristic of this godly wisdom is that it is considerate in verse 17. Considerate. And here is what here's what D. Edmund Hebert says about that word considerate. Again, I want you to know it's not just Ken saying. Hebert says that the person who is considerate is one who forgoes his rights. Are you kidding me? I'm an American. I am entitled. I don't forego my rights. I have a right to fill in the blank. That's American wisdom. And then there's God's wisdom. Consider it. Forgoes his rights. Now I have to tell you, this struck at my heart. Because he gave an illustration. So I read an illustration as I was studying for this. And it was an illustration of a pastor who had been slandered by someone. I haven't been slandered as far as I know. But this person had been slandered, and he had a right to point it out and to really set the person straight. He would have been within his rights to do that. But this pastor chose not to do that. He had this meekness. He had this humility that characterizes godly wisdom. And he chose to make excuses for his attacker. And he told those who told him about the slander, you know, he's working a lot of hours. He's, he's really got a lot on his mind. And I was convicted because the truth of the matter is, if that happens to me, that is not my first thought. I must confess, it's not my first thought. To make excuses for the attacker. It is to find out how I can how I can get this right, how I can set him straight. And so the conviction that you may be feeling now goes for me as well, friends. Verse 17 says as well, this godly wisdom is submissive. It's not the word that's used for submit elsewhere in your New Testament. 
It means to place under. It doesn't. It's not that word. It's another word that means reasonable, able to be persuaded. The wisdom that comes from God is characterized by a mind that is able to be persuaded. Not set in his or her ways because, remember, their opinion is not foremost. Because they have godly wisdom. They place the interests of all before their own interests. And therefore they are reasonable. They can be persuaded. The Bible tells us of a time when David, King David, was set on pursuing a course of action. He was entreated by a woman named Abigail, and he decided not to do it because of her wisdom. And the Bible says, David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. David demonstrated this this reasonableness, this submissiveness, able to be persuaded. Mercy. If you want to just get a quick definition of what James means by mercy here, It's compassion in action. The person who has this wisdom from God, when they see other people who are in need, they have a generous impulse, a merciful, compassionate impulse. Why? Because they're not proud. Because they're not self-made men. Because they're not boasting about who they are and what they have. And they see someone else in need, they easily have compassion and mercy upon them. Impartial. And what it means is this. The person who has genuine godly wisdom does not take one position when with one set of people and another position when with another set. Ah, We've all known that, haven't we? And then sincere. is the last trait listed in verse 17. Sincere. means literally without wax. Now, how does that translate to being sincere? It's sometimes translated not hypocritical. Without wax, not hypocritical, sincere. How does that fit together? Here's how. In New Testament times, you know, most of the, most of the utensils, the bowls, and so on that people used were made of clay. They would be baked in the sun. And when they were baked in the sun, sometimes they would crack. But the person's put all this work into it. They want to sell it on the market, but it's got a crack in it. So here's what they would do to cover the crack. They would put wax over the crack so that it wouldn't leak and it would hide the defect. Sincere means without wax, not hypocritical, not hiding. Not one thing in one situation hiding what you are in reality. I'll give you one illustration, then we're almost done. Years ago, I did encounter a man in the church that was our parent church. He's long gone. He's no longer there. So I can say this. You wouldn't know him. But he was someone who exhibited this ungodly wisdom that James speaks about. Made things very difficult, very difficult for a long time for our church. And one of the things I noted about this this gentleman was that in certain situations, he required things of people that he refused to do in his own situation. He was a business owner. And in his business, he absolutely demanded that people submit to his every word, on cue right now. But in the church realm, he could not bring himself to submit to the authority that God had placed in the church. 
He had done well in business. He was to be credited for that. He lived well, as well. He had the means to do that. But for him, there was nothing that was too cheap for the church. But there was also nothing that was too expensive if he wanted it for himself. Now, friends, that's insincere. That's hypocrisy. That's the kind of wisdom that can characterize us and can even characterize God's church if we're not careful. And so a good God gives us not only a mirror, but he gives us a portrait of what we should be. And he gives us the means to become what we should be. Chapter 1 and verse 5 of James. Chapter 1 and verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, do you all remember what it says? Let him do what? Ask of God. Who gives liberally without partiality. If you see in this mirror that God has held before you today that you lack aspects of this wisdom, as I do, then we ask a good God who is ready to afford it to us. Let's bow before the Lord together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your goodness that is seen most profoundly in the Lord Jesus in his person and work, what he has done for us in dying on the cross for our sin, so that we could be reconciled to a holy God, though we are still sinful and still struggle with sin. Lord, we thank you for that goodness, but your goodness says that are made new every day to us by showing us in your word, your promises, showing us in your word through the mirror that is your word what we are like and though it is painful it is good and showing us in your word a picture of what we should be like but not just the gap that exists between the mirror and the picture but the means to for that gap to be narrowed and ultimately to be closed completely through the Lord Jesus through your spirit and through your word we can become what you intend us to be And so, Lord, help me not to be satisfied with where I am. Help none of us here to be satisfied with where we are. But help us to look with anticipation into the mirror of the Word of God and where we fall short, avail ourselves of your gift of giving wisdom to those who ask you. And, Lord, for anyone here who has not begun a relationship with with you through the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that right now they would be pouring out their hearts to you, acknowledging their sin the number of sins, the type of sin, quite irrelevant. The fact of sin, that we are separated from you by one sin, by what we are and the way we come into this world and our disposition means we are sinners separated from you. But the Lord Jesus has done what's necessary to bridge the infinite gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. I pray that there are people acknowledging that right now. That they're asking for your forgiveness found in Jesus. That they're devoting their, their life to you right now, committing to follow you as you enable them. Bring glory to yourself in these new births. Bring glory to yourself in the repentance of your people. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.